And I have a little confession to make this morning. The whole world doesn't revolve around internal medicine. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, my confession is that uh, I have a problem. I call it a wax problem. And some of the dentists might talk about waxing and so on, but that's not that. I have a wax problem that is an internal medicine problem that has a surgical solution. Now, that's kind of odd, but we'll get into that a little bit. Now, while you know probably a little bit about me, if you've read any of the uh, little things that talk about who's going to be speaking this morning, uh, I don't know very much about you, so I'd like to, if you wouldn't mind, I'll ask you a few questions. Is that all right? Mm -hmm. Is this a nice group? Okay, good, good. You said that right off the bat. That's good. Okay, so uh, how many faculty members are here? Can you just raise your hand, anybody with faculty? Okay, we have a smattering of faculty members. How many students? Ah, a lot, a lot of students. Uh, how many people here are married? Raise your hand, let me see. Whoa, that's a large group. Okay, and we had a late bloomer back there. All right. <laughs> Now, how many of you, uh, this is going to get a little bit more personal, how many of you over the course of the last week did something that you know you shouldn't have done? Okay, that, I see most people, some people are shy. <laughs> so let me ask it more directly. How many over the last week committed at least one sin? Look around, look around. Okay. All right, so it's safe to say that I am here today with a group of sinners. Is it safe to say that? Okay, sinners saved by grace. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, so with that in mind, I am going to assume that I can speak openly. Is that all right? Okay, one sinner talking to other sinners about how to deal with this problem that we have. You see, I told you that I have a confession and my problem is that I have a wax problem. The thing is, some of you may have the same problem. You may also have the same wax problem that we have to deal with. And hopefully today we can get some insights into how to deal with that. While they take their seats, maybe we can bow for a word of prayer one more time. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to come to you in prayer and in supplication, to ask you to please help us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. To be people who, at the end of it all, will be able to escape this planet alive. To be able to be with you. To be able to breathe the air of heaven firsthand. Lord, if there's anything that I'm going to be talking about today, if there are any thoughts that I have that are not what should be discussed, I pray that you'll banish it from my mind. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Now, we believe that the Holy Spirit is here, and it is with that hope, with that uh, anticipation, 
we're going to talk a little bit. Now, um, anybody here uh, knows anything about wax? Candle wax? <laughs> Paraffin wax? Wax. Well, the story is told by the, uh, well, from the Greek and Roman times that there were some issues relating to wax. Sometimes great sculptors would make a statue or some kind of sculpture, but instead of doing it all in marble, they may kind of be a little bit aggressive on one point or you know, take out a little bit too much of the stone in another. And so what they would do is they would fill the defect with wax. And by putting the wax there and coloring it over, looking like the marble, uh, it would appear as if the sculptor had done a perfect job. But in fact, it was not a perfect job. As soon as the heat would come, people would realize that the sculpture had some defects. I'm talking about a wax problem. We all have defects. We all, I think most of us here would admit that we have some defects and we have some wax issues to deal with. But part of the problem is that we don't fully always understand the nature of our problem. And we might think that everything really is all right, that everything is okay. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll tell you what was going on with me. I used to sit and hear good, good sermons and talks and I would read and they never really penetrated because I was intellectually dealing with what I was reading or hearing. It wasn't dealing with me, you see, because after all, if you get to know me, I'm a pretty good guy, you know? As a matter of fact, if I got to know you, I'd find out that you're a pretty good person too. And so we might go along thinking that we're all good, nice people having a good time, and never really taking the time or having the inclination to get down to the real issues. You see, we have defects that we fill up with wax. If I were to ask you some questions about how you run your life, I may begin to evaluate you by my standards. And I might say that you are doing far better than I am. And if I told that to you, you would feel that you are doing really well. But is that the way we really should be evaluating how things are? Is that the reality that God sees? And is that the reality that he wants us to be able to deal with? Well, you know, one of the monuments on this campus at Loma Linda is the sculpture, the statue of the Good Samaritan. You've seen it, right? 
Yeah, well, uh, to date myself a little bit, uh, we were here when that statue was, uh, was unveiled. Uh, actually, we, can you imagine that? Yeah, that's kind of, yeah. I was here before the statue. <laughs> yeah. Before the statue and after the statue. Okay, good. So I was here before the statue. And I remember uh, the unveiling and all of the uh, issues that went on around that. So the Good Samaritan uh, is a good metaphor for Loma Linda because that's one of the, the hallmarks. When you see uh, the name Loma Linda anywhere, you see the statue because this is, this is something that is uh, important. So would you think that uh, people at Loma Linda, all of us, would be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? Would you think that? Okay, now I'm going to tell you about a, a story, actually about a, 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 an experiment that was done back in 1973 by two researchers, Darley and Batson. And what they did is they had some students. They took about 63, 63 67 students. And uh, they had these, these young people involved in this research, serious educational research. Okay? And the students were committed to doing what the researchers were asking them to do. The first part of the research involved their uh, taking a questionnaire. Now, what was going to happen was uh, the researchers would work with these students, give them the questionnaire, and then there were other things that the students were supposed to do as part of the experiment. The questionnaire was a personality uh, type questionnaire looking at various things, but important to the researchers was to look at their spiritual religious commitment. And then they told the students that uh, they had to perform another task. They had to go over to another building from where they were to give a talk. Now, some of them were told that they were going to be talking to other students about the career that they were in. These, these students, by the way, who were uh, involved in the research were all graduating students, you know, uh, top of the class. Uh, and these students were we're told you had to go and give a talk to some other students, right? And one of the talks that they were going to give was about their career and jobs in that, in that field. The other half of the students were told that the thing that they were going to be talking about is the story of the Good Samaritan. So you get the idea? There are two groups, one going to be talking about the Good Samaritan, and the other group is going to be talking about their career. And they dispatch these students over to the other building to give their talk, but giving them some instructions first. There were three kinds of instructions that they gave them. One was the researcher would look at his watch and say, uh-oh, you're late. You need to get over there right now to be able to give the talk. Okay? The second was the researcher would look at his watch and say, you're just about on time. Why don't you uh, go over? You, you'll make it. And the third one, the researcher would look at his watch and say, you have some time, but why don't you go ahead and go over there now so that you'll you know, get over there in time. Okay? So the three groups, each one individually, would be going over. On the way, they had to pass a particular point. And at that point, entered the Confederate. 
an actor was there. This actor was on the ground, eyes closed, obviously in distress, and his instructions while he's moaning on the ground is that when these students are passing by, amidst the moans and groans, he would cough twice. The question is, would the students who are going to do their talking, would they stop and help this man? The results of this research was published. It's been a study that has been analyzed and reanalyzed, and all sorts of questions have been asked about the results. But what do you think? Do you think that the students, in general, would have stopped? I'm looking at you. I'm seeing a lot of incredulity here, <laughs> saying, no, you don't think they'll stop. Okay. How many of you think that those who we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan. They would stop. I'm seeing some hands. Okay, there's still faith in the world. <laughs> okay, well, let me share with you some of the results. 60% of the students offered no help whatsoever. 60%. Now, they graded the response of the help. It was from zero was like nothing. They passed by as if nothing was going on. The guy wasn't even there. All the way to uh, you could get a five if the person insisted to stay at the, at the, uh, at the man's side, the man in distress, and, or insisted in taking him somewhere to get some help. There were very few people who were fives. Regardless of whether they were talking about the Good Samaritan or talking about their job career. Isn't that something? You know what was the number one predictor as to whether they would stop or not? The time. Those who were in a hurry, only 10% gave any indication that this guy existed. Only 10%. But for those who were told that they had time to get over, you need to know, only 63% of them stopped. As a matter of fact, it's recorded that some of them even stepped over the man. <laughs> Nudge him out of the way. No. You wouldn't do a thing like that, would you? You see, we have wax problems. <laughs> On the outside, we might appear to be whole and that everything is okay. But on the inside, we may have other things that are going on. You know, when we talk to ourselves, we might actually be deceiving ourselves into thinking that everything is all right. I know I have done that, and I'm on a journey of thinking 
you know, I'm not all right. And sometimes, many times, God puts people in my way to help me to realize how unright and unrighteous I really am in myself. Because it's not easy to see it when you think that everything is going well. I mean, uh, you're successful at what you're doing. In your classes, you're getting good grades. You might be the first in your class. But how about if the whole class is failing anyway? But you're first. Is that a good consolation? Not hardly. We also have the tendency to compare ourselves among ourselves. And the Bible speaks against that. That we, we compare with someone else who has wax problems. And if I have less wax problems, I might think that I'm better off. The fact is, if I have a wax problem, I have a wax problem, period. And if you do, you do, period. So we think we might be okay. And we might think, I may not do that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, I didn't tell you what kind of students these were. They were all seminarians graduating from the Princeton Seminary. Would that make a difference? Would it make a difference if the people who were, uh, the students who were being evaluated, would it make a difference if they were in health care professions? Would they have shown more compassion on this man who was suffering? What do you think? I'm seeing some smiles. I think I, I take that as a positive. You're thinking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right? Maybe, maybe if they were all dentists and dental students, since that school sits right in front of the statue. <laughs> you know, they're bombarded with this every day. You would think that they would stop. They would find out about his mouth. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Uh, but maybe they would stop. Well, how about... How about when we are in a hurry and we have other things that we have on our minds? You know, another thing about how long I have been around Loma Linda, you know where Stater Brothers is? I have a secret for you. That was not always Stater Brothers. <laughs> there was another market there in that place. Anybody knows the name? Alpha Beta. There are others who have been here too. All right. It was the Alpha Beta. All right. And when I first came to Loma Linda, I was not a Seventh day Adventist. And it was a curious sight for me on Friday afternoons when I would go to the Alpha Beta to see people scurrying around. They would hardly have enough time to say hello. Why? Because the sun was setting. And they had to get out of the alpha beta 
before that sun hit the horizon. <laughs> now, I, I'm, I'm saying it and it, it sounds funny, but I mean, we have to guard the edges of the Sabbath. This is a serious thing. But now, what are some of the implications if you happen to be in that situation? So you're in the Alpha Beta, and it's no fault of yours that things happen that day that put you back so that you're getting there and you're in a hurry to pick up a few things before the sun sets. Can you relate to that? Yeah, more or less? Okay, good. I'm seeing enough visual ascent. So now, you're in the Alpha Beta or the Stater Brothers or the whatever market. And you really, when you were picking up the things, you had, you had about 15 items that you picked up. But you know the checkout lane, the express lane, only says 10. And you are a good Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> right? So you put back five of the items because you want to be okay as you go through that express lane that says 10 items or less. Are you with me? Right? So you go to the lane, and as you're getting there, okay, you know you can make it. Somebody comes around the corner, and they get to the lane before you. Now, you don't know this person, but you take a quick glance at her basket, and she has 27 and a half items there. Do you know how you know it? Because you took the time to count it. You look at the basket, and now you're thinking, I don't know about you guys. So if this doesn't fit you, that's all right. <laughs> but for many, they would say something like, man. And then they start what I would call the Sabbath dance, okay? Because you want to be right, okay? So you're a little bit antsy. And you're trying to catch the eye of the woman who has the basket with 25 items, okay? 27 and a half. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So you look at her, and you're trying to tell her, look, the sign says 10. You have, right? And some might be, you know, bold enough to say, ma'am, uh, this is a 10-item lane. Or others might be a little bit more subtle. They might be looking at the cashier. They catch the eye of the cashier and they say something like this with their eyes. Huh? Yeah. And what you're hoping for is that the cashier would say to the person, ma'am, this is a 10-item lane. Uh, can you go over to that other aisle, please, and let the other customers pass through? You're hoping for this. As a matter of fact, you're praying for it, okay, that this would happen. Now, let's change the scenario. The woman who's uh, going through with the 27 and a half items, she actually is a teeny bopper. She has headphones on, and she's rocking to some kind of music as she's going through the lane. And you have one attitude with that person. How about this? 
Scenario number two. It's actually a woman who seems to be in utter distress. She has a baby on her arms that she's holding, and she has twins that are toddlers. I'm really making this good, right? <laughs> she has twins that are toddlers, and they are just, they are just filled with energy, and she's trying her best to corral all of this as she's going through the lane. Now what? Would you have the same attitude? But Sabbath is coming. What are you going to do? All right, let's change the scenario. The Sabbath thing, that never happens to you. You're always on time. No problems. But I know what happens if you drive a car. You have a situation that happens every so often. There are three lanes, but one is going to end in a thousand feet. You've seen those signs, right? Lane ends in 1,000 feet. Now, I, I really can't estimate very well what 1,000 feet is, but I know it's not a few miles, okay? But you might be in a hurry because you have to get to the hospital or something like that, and you ignore the sign. Anybody here does that? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> and you go along in this lane that is about to end, and then you are going to time very well when you're going to sneak into the next lane over and you'll bypass all of those guys who have slowed down and some of them stopped because the lane next to you is already backed up. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so now you're driving along the lane and you're going to try to get in at the right time. You can tell I've had some experience at this, all right? You try to get in at the right time and whoop, you know, you get in there and everything is fine. Right? Right? Well, let's change the context a little bit. You are in a hurry. And you happen to have moved over before. When you saw the sign, you moved over. And you're driving along, creeping along. And this guy comes on the right side. In the lane that's supposed to end. And he passes you, and he goes zooming down the road. You will meet him again. <laughs> because he is now stuck, and he's trying to come in. And you are driving along, and he is there. What do you do? What do you do? How many of you would have compassion on this person and let him in? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you know, what the research has shown is that uh, the way people respond, it's almost predictable. There's something that can happen. If that person were to do certain things, you will let them in. Anybody knows what one of those things might be? What? He waves at you and he, and he asks, okay? If, he, if this guy waves at you and asks, you know, <laughs> I say, okay. So now, what is it that I have observed that people do? They keep their heads straight as a flint. 
they are focused, okay? They will not make eye contact. Why? Because they don't want to yield. And you know how I know it? Because I do it too. I can see it. Don't look. Don't make eye contact. Because if you do, it's all over. <laughs> see, I'm talking about a wax problem. Because I don't have anything on my car that says Christ-like on it. Because if I did, I would have to face some serious questions when this guy looks over my way and he says, Christ-like, that's how Christ would act? Well, we don't even have to get to the lane that's ending. How about just the speed limit? I notice there's a silence in the room. When the speed limit says 55, you're going along, and you're in a hurry. And you say, well, there's a nine mile per hour limit above the speed limit within which the California Highway Patrol will not give you a ticket. Have you heard that? It's at seven miles, 10 miles, 11 miles. Guess what we're doing now? Three miles. Man, they've gotten stingy. <laughs> what we do is we are looking for ways in which we can fill some of the obviously inconsiderate gaps that they have made the highway patrol people. And we want to fill it with some wax. Three miles per hour, five miles per hour, 10 miles per hour. You see? We want to fix that one by our being able to break that particular law. Maybe on the back of our cars we should all say Christ-likeness. Maybe that would make a change in how we do things. Well, have I gotten your attention yet? These things are things that we might be able to observe on the outside. But really, what's going on on the inside of us? What's going on in our hearts? Now, my wife and I, we have been blessed to have three sons. And, you know, I told my wife and I had all the intention of after she delivered the first baby that... Uh, don't worry, sweetheart. I will take care of all the issues at night so that you can get some sleep. How does that sound? Am I not a good husband? Yeah. Until the first night. <laughs> and I want to sleep. And the baby's crying. And of course, I can rationalize the whole thing. After all, what the baby is after is something that I cannot provide. <laughs> Physically impossible for me to provide. But you know, what I can do is to get the baby and bring the baby over, right? 
Well, I'd like to let you know that that's what I would do. And that's what I did do most of the time. Not all the time. And then there might be the issues around the house of washing the dishes. And, you know, you see the dishes are piling up a little bit uh, with or without a dishwasher. It doesn't matter. And you know, because you had the feeling in your heart, you knew it. You said, you know, it'll be no problem for me to wash these few dishes and it'll be easier for those who are. And you resist that. And you go and you do something else. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But this is common to human beings. We have a sense of doing something that we know it would be the right thing to do. But at this moment, we think it's inconvenient, not expedient. So we do something else. And we deny the urge that we had to go ahead and do something that was better. And we settle for doing something that has cracks in it. And then we need to patch that up with wax. You see, I want my wife to think that I'm a loving husband. And therefore, I may do some things that make it seem as if I am a loving husband. Some of you may have a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé, or uh, somebody that you're interested in. And what you may be trying to do would be things that would appear as if you're really the nicest guy or girl on the planet. And then, later on, that person will discover this, the truth, the real truth. Or maybe only part of it, because you might still hold some things in reserve, you see. Because you don't want them to find out the whole truth. The way the Bible puts it, it says in Proverbs 4.23, that the heart is deceitful, that, no, Wrong text. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Proverbs 4.23 says that we should keep our hearts with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We shouldn't be playing around with heart issues and mind issues. Because it all starts up here what we're thinking about what we're doing, whether we have taken the time to think about what we are doing, where we're headed, what this whole situation is all about that we call being a Christian. Are we like the guys in the Batson experiment? That when it's not convenient and when we're in a hurry, we step over the person who is ill, in need of our attention because we have something else that's more pressing to do. We demonstrate 
that the sculpture that is our human self has chinks that have been filled with wax. Now the Bible is replete with counsels for us telling us about things and we may interpret these things as things that we have to do. And believe you me, there are lots of things in the Bible that can be reduced to do's and don'ts. We all ought to be very aware that there are things that we might, we might call them the three P's. Okay? The first P has to do with things that are prescribed. God says, do this. Think of it as a physician making a prescription. Take thou, do this. We ought to be very careful when he says to do this, that we do everything within our power to be able to do it. Because he's not going to ask us to do something that he isn't going to give us the power to accomplish. Right? His biddings are enablings. Okay? Now we say this. So if he tells us to do something, yeah. But now he knows that we're dust. So guess who takes even the responsibility of giving us all of the power to accomplish what he has asked us to do? He does. So we can read, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Wonderful. So God prescribes, we pay attention to that P, what he has prescribed. And then there's another P, the things that he prohibits. He says, don't do that. Now, we might assume that if he says, don't do that, that, you know, even if you like to do it, that maybe he's kind of holding you back from something that, uh, that you know, if he knew better, he would let you do it anyway. You know what I mean? Maybe he's just not in tune with what's happening today. Because, after all, if he knew what I'm going through, then he wouldn't make such a big deal about telling me not to do that today, under these circumstances. There must be some exception. And I'm it today. You think that's so? No. If he, prescri if he proscribes something or prohibits something, he's really trying to tell us that this is for our best good. Don't do it. There are consequences that will not work out for our benefit in this journey in Christ-likeness. So we have to be careful about the things that he prescribes that we do, the, thing that, the things that he proscribes or prohibits that we then don't do. And who do you think will give us the strength to be able to do or not do? He will. In the middle, we have another P. And those are the things that God permits. He doesn't prescribe, nor does he prohibit. He permits. And I think, as a, as a father myself, he gets joy in seeing what his children do 
with the things that he permits. Let me see how they're going to choose. Let me see what criteria they take in order to decide to do this or that. Our discretion. I believe that when he observes what we think and therefore do with the things that he permits, he is pleased when we are doing them with the right motivation. And he's saddened when we do them with the wrong motivation. You see, he likes the authentic things too. With the sunshine of his righteousness, he would like for us all to come out without wax. So he gives us a promise. He says, I will be able to take care of this if you are willing to submit yourself to the hands and the tools of the sculptor. We have to get on the inside. It's an inside job. Internal medicine, remember? <laughs> it's an inside job. What's going on in your heart? I want to see what's in your heart. And I want you to understand that you need to pay attention and guard the heart as well. Out of it are the issues of life. Now, how does he deal with this? Here in Loma Linda, we have a lot of history of things that were pioneered here. And we've done, over the years, a lot of cardiovascular research and a lot of cardiovascular procedures. Now, I have, uh, over the years, met some of the great cardiovascular surgeons that have passed through Loma Linda, and some of whom are still here. And these guys, as great as they are, now I haven't done a survey to ask them specifically, but I suspect that the way I'm seeing it, they would see it too. I don't know any cardiovascular surgeon who would submit himself to doing his own cardiovascular surgery. What do you think? I don't think that they will do that. You see, when we're dealing with heart issues, we have to have somebody else who's working on our heart besides us. We're not capable. When we're dealing with heart issues, we have to realize our own inadequacy to deal with our own hearts. And we have to place ourselves and our hearts in the hands of a capable surgeon. Amen. We have to trust him enough to work with our hearts. But you know, what God promises us is not just to fix our hearts, not to put wax and kind of uh, mend our hearts. He goes even further. He wants to give us a heart transplant. In order for somebody to have a heart transplant, you need to understand. They need to have another heart to replace the one that they have. Right? 
That's why it's a transplant. So where do you think he'll get another heart to put in us? Someone has to die. Someone has to die. On a more secular note, you're probably aware that right now, despite the ability that we have to do infant heart transplants for people with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, people, babies are still dying of this problem because there aren't enough donors, enough donor hearts. But God didn't wait for anybody else to die to procure the heart that he wants to put in us. He took the initiative himself and he sent his son. And his son died so that we might have life and we might have a heart that is made without wax. If you look in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36, and you find verse 26. Do we have a mic that somebody can use to read? Okay, Alan, would you, would you mind reading or see if there's someone who would? like to read. Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 26. Starting with verse 26. Mm -hmm. A new heart. Oops. Ah, this one. Touch it. Good. new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Continue. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Amen. Did you hear that? Did you get that? He is saying, he will give us a new heart. See, he has made a diagnosis. The diagnosis that we have, all of us, is hard hearts. Translate that another way, hard heads. We hear and we know and we pretend instead of actually yielding to do. So it might be easier to lie in the bed and pretend to be tired and asleep because you don't want to go and get the baby so that your wife says, oh, my husband, he works so hard. <laughs> and she gets up and gets the baby. All's well. Or is it? You see, his spirit bears witness with ours. And he tells us, this is really not right. But if we persist in this direction, guess what happens? Our hearts get calloused 
and stony. And then we don't even have the urge to do what otherwise we would have thought. This is a good thing to do. So God says, you have stony hearts. Diagnosis, stony heart. You know what the prognosis for stony heart is? It's fatal. Fatal. The only kind of therapy that works with stony heart is heart transplant. To give us a soft heart. And this is what God does. The text says, He will take out this stony heart and He will give us a heart of flesh. A soft heart, a tender heart, a heart of compassion. A heart that would say, yes, even though I'm in this experiment, that confederate you don't know is somebody that's pretending. Will you be moved to help that person? Will you judge the woman who is trying to get things done before Sabbath like you are? And offer a hand to help her as opposed to being judgmental and being upset, ruining your Sabbath before it even starts. Oh, I tell you, once we start going down the rabbit hole of who we are in ourselves, we would see that when the Bible says that we should have no confidence in the flesh, it's talking the truth. That we don't even have confidence in ourselves. If you look on the internet, I did. On this thing about self-confidence, there's all of this uh, psychological mumbo-jumbo. They're telling us that we should be confident in ourselves. And the Bible says just the opposite. That we should have no confidence in the flesh, not even your own. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then Jesus says, God says, in Ezekiel 36, that he will put in the new heart. And he will install with that new heart, that's the hardware, he puts in software. Okay? He'll put his spirit within us. Amen? Amen. He will put his spirit in us too. Okay? And then he says, I will cause you, I, he will cause us to keep his statutes and do them. So all of those P's that are prohibitions and the P's that are prescriptions, He will work within us to do this. But there is nobody who goes under the knife of cardiovascular surgery without giving his or her consent. Signs a consent and submits himself or herself to the knife. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, this Sabbath morning, I want to beg you to join me on this journey if you haven't been on it already. To submit to Jesus Christ. Amen. To stop by His power, by His grace, to stop the pretense 
to get rid of the wax. Be real. And to use as the standard, not what other people see and what other people do, but rather to use as the standard, the only standard that God uses, his son Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for being so gracious towards us and to understand that we are but dust. In ourselves, Lord, we can do nothing. We have nothing to come to you that speaks in our favor. But we're thankful that you have seen fit to call us out of darkness into your light and that you're willing to work with us even when we have hard hearts to soften us up and to put your heart in us so that we can be like Jesus. Yes, Lord, even adults, we can talk about being like Jesus. Thank you for hearing our prayer this morning. I pray that we'll have a blessed Sabbath. And in addition to that, that we would be a blessing to others on this Sabbath and every day. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.